we had this conversation where she was talking to those parts for it because I could I didn't have any defenses to help those parts consider that maybe we <laughs> we were not so messed up that we had broken the child that maybe the timing of all of this was awful but that this was when this kiddo was coming into himself and that my kiddo needed me to see him hey y'all have you had that moment yet with your kids that left you feeling totally confused about what the right next step is who am i kidding you probably have them weekly if not daily i know i do this parenting thing we do it can feel stressful and downright overwhelming confusing traumatizing joyous disappointing and like the best thing we've ever done all in a matter of moments all of those emotions have messages and they often conflict with each other if we don't sort through these emotions or parts of ourselves that are showing up in this chapter of parenthood we're sure to misstep and blow it somehow this is why one of the most helpful things we can do as parents when we're working hard to support our trans kiddos is to get clear on what it is we're experiencing and what we really need to do with it. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host, Mackenzie Dunham. So often I meet with parents whose first reaction to every request their child asks is no. And they aren't even sure why they're saying no. As a society, and I'm talking about Americans, we've done a pretty poor job of accurately learning and teaching each other how to integrate and embody our emotions with intention and understanding. If we were better at that, we would know why we're saying no and figure out ways to say yes. One of the biggest jokes I have with myself during therapy sessions is that I'll tell people, let's do something fun. And then I'll whip out a therapy game or a project that brings out emotion. And what I really mean when I say let's do something fun is let's do something fun for me. I love emotions and feelings. I've made a career out of it and have learned so much about myself in the process. I'm made up of all kinds of different parts. There's this podcaster part. There's the part that gets in the way of me sitting down to write when I really need to. There's the part that shuts everything down when I get overwhelmed. There's the part that is actively working to destroy the patriarchy. There's the part that finds so much comfort in the social norms and gender roles that have been laid out for me to follow. I'm complex, just like you, and just like my guest today, Delina Meyer. Delina wears a lot of hats. She's a mom, a partner, and the founder of Deviant Compassion Consulting, where her team helps people bring more compassionate humanity to their work. She's a community leader, a dynamic speaker, constant learner, and total strategy nerd. In her free time, she enjoys pretending to be a soul singer, playing in the ocean, obsessing over cheese, and having adventures with her husband, laughing with her son, and building a community of friends and chosen family. Delina is the mother of three kids. She and her family live in a suburban community. She and her family are white. Delina identifies as part of the LGBTQ community, and She's going to talk with us about her youngest child, Oliver, and all the parts that came up and got activated as she and Oliver charted the path of his transition. As a reminder, all stories shared by parents at Campfire are done so with the full consent of their child, and identifying details are altered to whatever point a family requests in order to feel safe sharing their story. As you listen to the story of Delina's parts, 
I encourage you to reflect on your own. To assist you in this journey, I've created a handout for you that will help you to get to know your own parts. And I'll tell you where you can find it, along with other resources for you to check out after the interview. Delina. Hi. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. I'm super excited to have you. Um, I've known you for such a long time, and I've known you in a different way than I've known other families that have interviewed on the podcast so far. So I'm really excited to just have the opportunity to talk to somebody that's not necessarily been in my office in that way. I mean, we've been in each other's universes for over a decade, really, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've got this amazing kid. I do. Who I obviously adore. I mean, obvious to you and me, um, but to listeners, I'll just let them know that I also adore Oliver. I've I've yet to meet someone who isn't pretty amazed by him. And people who don't even know that he's my kid, and they're amazed by him. So I, I feel like I'm, my bias is also everyone else's bias now. Yeah, he's a pretty fantastic, you've done a pretty fantastic job. So Oliver's trans. Yeah. Right? And so how old was Oliver when he dropped that bomb on you? Uh, it wasn't a bomb. I think that's that's one of our pieces is it wasn't a bomb. Right. Oliver came out as queer. The first round was fourth grade. He was bi. He told the girl at school that he liked her. She was like, okay, well, let's just be friends. And he was so excited that he told her. And then she still was like wanting to be friends. And then other kids in class were having conversations and given a few kids were being, you know, crappy about it. And uh, a couple of his friends were like, um, you don't get to be shitty at somebody, you know, fourth graders, very justice oriented fourth graders were like, you don't get to da, 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 da. And so he came home and his coming out story initially was this fourth grader came home elated that his friends had his back and he yeah. was like scared and, and he did the thing and he felt really strongly about it. And he just said the thing and he told, and first time he told his crush, they liked them. So that was like fourth grade and our family, like when he was little, I worked at an LGBT youth center. Right. So like he's always been around lots of different expressions of sexuality and, and gender and all those things. So it was a normal part of our conversation. It just kind of got more androgynous from there. (laughs) Right. Um, It's important to know. I think that none of my kids um, are straight. So like all of my kids are some form of queer and out. And my oldest also has um, some gender non-binary expression and and kind of floats back and forth, definitely fluid with gender stuff. And so Oliver had exposure to that within our home in a way that was already normalized. What's the age difference there? My oldest is 23 and Oliver's almost 17. So the older two Mm -hmm. are like 22 and 23. Okay. So, um, so not tons, but old enough that these are high schoolers and that was a young middle schooler and you know, at the time. And so they were, they were exploring all their stuff and, and Ollie got to see that and got to see that, that it was not something that I was so like comfortable with. Cause I was, I was still like, I'm a great ally, you know, like I'm right. queer, I'm a queer mom. Like I'm, I'm, I'm in a heterosexual relationship, but I'm, I'm definitely bi. Um, uh-huh. I'm cis, but, but cisgendered, but like, I don't, um, it didn't occur to me that that was even a possibility for my family. And so one of the first things, even though it wasn't a bomb that happened was I was just like, Oh, wait, 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 my child. (laughs) And even when my older kid was like, Hey, I don't think I'm actually all that 
like cisgendered, I was like, okay, because that was my niece. So, and, and she's okay with, with parts of her story being told in that way of like, she was just like, I don't know, I'm going to do some, you know, I'm going to hang out at Triple Point. I'm going to do some stuff. I'm going to try some things. I'm going to be a dude today. I'm going to be not dude today. Triple Point, just for reference, is in the community we live in, the only LGBTQ support, social and emotional support group, right, for, for yeah, that's open queer to youth in our, it's like free and completely grant funded and um it's the like the only safe space for a lot of the kids in this community yeah so 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 anyway so they were going to triple point yeah they were going to triple point and then they took they took oliver to triple point yes. as soon as as soon as oliver was old enough like poof, counting down yeah. the days right and so that was great because again i had worked for for a, 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 a different program in a different part of the state. And so I was like, all right, cool. I, I want my kids to have their people. I want them to have supports. But then this other part of my brain, I think the most appropriate clinical term for what happened to my, to the biggest part of that when Oliver um, got clearer about who he was. And it was definitely a they first. And then now he right. um, was that, the trauma narrative that had begun about this one particular kid. And then my life was currently falling apart right. personally. And I was um, for the second time in Oliver's life, so consumed with my own grief and trauma right. that I, I knew I was not showing up for my kids. So I had already, we had the aces abandonment thing happening and I knew it, but I couldn't fix it yet. And now okay. this was happening. Pause for a sec. Yeah. Aces abandonment. Oh, yeah, emotional abandonment, abandonment, uh, which is a common um, experience. All of us have felt abandoned by our caregivers at some point or another. Um, so ACEs is adverse childhood experiences. Um, there's 10 of them that they identified in a study. You can learn more at the CDC's website on it. Um, but I'll ACEs. Put I'll put yeah. links so people can learn more. So I'm a high trauma kid, and one of my um, we we share we spread aces by giving them to our children, not on purpose. We right. we are parents, and we all screw up our kids a little bit in some ways. And in my life, because of my experiences, I um, had already had at least one season where I had kind of stopped being attuned to my kiddo. Yeah, like right, like taking care of, not neglecting, but emotional neglect is really what I mean by abandonment. So I already knew that I was struggling in that way. So when Oliver was really clear, finally, with the therapist, because he was going to counseling, and he and the therapist sat me down and said, this is this, is this reality. And it was so gentle and so kind. Mm-hmm. Um, my, um, my response to that was, oh, my God, I have broken my baby. Um, so we talk about like what comes up when the bomb drops. And so even though it wasn't a bomb, it was a steady progression. When it got to the part where this kid was saying, I'm not who you thought I was. Mm-hmm. I lost the ability to not make it about me right then. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I kind of did break my baby. Right. But it wasn't, it wasn't for the way that I thought, like I thought I had been such a traumatized, messed up person that I had neglected my child to the point that 
Um, and I had allowed so much chaos into their life that they had to Mm -hmm. take control of the only thing they could, which was their own identity. Right. And I'm not suggesting either that that's never what happens because I know people for whom their narrative and their experience is that that's what happened. And I wouldn't say that that's even bad or wrong or less valid as a trans identity. I think that there are lots of ways that we get to lots of places, but I could be wrong about that. No, I think you're totally spot on about that. I think that's one of the things about gender that is interesting and unique. But but that wasn't what was happening here. Right? Right. And that's that's the truth of it. For, for this situation, the parts of me that had been harmed and the parts of me that felt incompetent or dangerous, right? The parts of me that that had led the parts of me that had led to me choosing not to parent my first child mm-hmm. who was a, a beautiful little girl who is now a beautiful young woman and I have a um, wonderful relationship with that I cherish everything went right about that choice it was the most parental choice that I could make and I bring that up because in the moment that this child said, I'm not who you think I am. And I have a very clear, and Ollie has never been a wishy-washy kid. No. Um, and I don't, I want to say that differently because I don't actually think most kids are wishy-washy. I don't think, I don't know that I think any kid is wishy-washy. Oliver has always been the most grounded, firm in, in his own understanding of himself. Now, that understanding of himself might change rapidly. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, but wherever he is is where he is. But his uh, willfulness, it's not stubbornness, it's willfulness. His will has never, ever been approximately where mine is. It has always been about 9,000 times stronger. And that's a terrifying thing for, for me because I, I live off of bravado. So I am authoritative sometimes and controlling and I'm like, I am this like loud, big being mm-hmm. on the outside and on the inside. I'm like, please love me. Mm-hmm. Oh, you need me to change for, for you to love me. Okay. You know, so my issues lead to that. So this kiddo has never been questioning himself uh, to the degree that most of us do. <laughs> I just pause here really quickly. And I want to ask about, Right. You had these parts that were like, I'm hearing them now. So they might be retrospective parts, right? These parts that are like, it could have been that I threw him into this world of trauma and this world of chaos and this world of like, that I messed him up somehow. Um, What role did Oliver's therapist play in reassuring those parts? Oh, that's, that's an unfair question. It's very mean. And you should be, should be sad. Stop asking things right now. Um, yeah, so, you know, so I'm running around. I'm running around going, oh, see, this is why I gave up the first kid. And this is, this is why, this is proof that I am so traumatized that I am unsafe for other people. My trauma has poisoned me. And, right? So I'm there. And my poor baby. And, and I can't, I can't actually support him the way he deserves because I don't want to feed a delusion right? Mm -hmm. Feed a trauma response. I don't want to feed a trauma response. I want to help him heal through this. And at no point was it about being trans is bad. Like that was never the thing. No. Um, And the therapist brought me in and then Oliver left. (laughs) Which is always a good feeling. Um, 
And Tina Marie says, Mom, what's going on? Like, where are you at? Or some question like that. I don't remember the question. And I lost it. And I said the words out loud. I broke it. And she said, Oh. And that, oh, full of empathy and compassion and truly understanding where the issue was. And she said, You did not break him. You didn't break him. You couldn't have break. This has, this is not that. And she was, you know, her, her tone. I remember her tone because it was so tender. Um, and because I'm a, of, of how I present in the world, I don't actually get that very often. Right. No, I bet you don't. So it's really terrible. Like, <laughs> Anyone who hears this, if you want to just make me cry, just be really gentle at me and I'm screwed, right? So it's like, it's, it's a willpower kryptonite. And so she, we had this conversation where, where she was talking to those parts for me because I could, I didn't have any defenses to help those parts consider that maybe we, <laughs> mm-hmm. we were not so messed up that we had broken the child that maybe the timing of all of this was awful but that this was when this kiddo was coming into himself and that they were not disconnected it's not like nothing's connected but that this was not a causal relationship and that my kiddo needed me to see him yeah and so the thing about parts is who who's loudest right <laughs> so as soon as another grown-up who was treating me with compassion and seeing the broken parts of me and accepting them said your kiddo needs you to show up for him. Then the part of me that is the the mom part, like the mom, the mother that has, Mm -hmm. has been the most intentional mother. I I know to be, I got a degree in human development so that I could mother with intention Mm. and I'm insufferable about it. And anyone who's met me knows that and I'm (laughs) proud of it. So that's fine. Um, To be unmothered and then to choose not to parent as a parental choice and then to parent with intention yes, is a very powerful process. And I regret zero <laughs> of that. And the mom part of me was able to, to, to show up and go, Oh, our baby needs something. Mm-hmm. So yes, I know we have all this pain, but our pain is not as important as this kiddo's pain. So we're going to have to just deal with that later. Um, and so th- I think it was equal parts, good management and equal parts, like self-denial or so, you know, a little, not self-betrayal, but just that this is just not the most important thing right now. And I think that's an important thing to recognize that we can say to our parts, right? We can, and I think a lot of people don't know that we can say that to our parts. This is not the time. Like I hear you, but this is not the time. Yeah. You're going to have to sit down for right now. You're going to have, I need you to sit down and you step back. I need you to like take a seat next to me and watch, but like. But that's the thing. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I I wouldn't have been able to say up until like recently where I have enough distance from my own pain of that time. So there's my trauma pain. You know, it's making me tear up and and cry all the time. But like at that time was also the first time in my whole life that I was able to see the level of self-betrayal that I had done for my entire adult life in every relationship. So at the very time that those same parts that were freaking out needed me to show up for them, Mm -hmm. 
I had to tell them that they had to wait on this in this area because over in this other area, they were the ones that were getting the attention because they needed it and they should be in charge. And so right, I was learning right. how to heal and learning how to say, oh, hell no, here are some boundaries or I choose me. Can I just distinguish right when you say in this other part, like I know what that means, right? The, oh, because yeah. I know your story, right? So, but like at the, they were getting the attention in the aspect of where your life was falling apart, like that you talked right, about so, a little bit earlier. Right. right so you had this other. Yeah. I have my mar- my marriage falling apart, right? And, With just nothing to do with Oliver. Well, there's nothing to do. Nothing. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> the beautiful thing about toxic cocktails is that all of us bring our toxic cocktail or at least our ingredients. And in relationships, whether um, whether queer or straight, whether monogamous or non-monogamous, whether um, young or old, all of our ingredients mix up. And the toxic cocktail that was my marriage at that time had just gotten poured and it was pouring all over everything. Mm -hmm. And so there was this interesting thing that now I know how to talk about it as a mom in retrospect, that one of the most terrible realities of parenthood of any flavor of parenthood is that our life and our own human development is happening while they're developing. And at Mm -hmm. that moment we're the biggest, hugest leaps to date for both Oliver and I And the terrible, unfair burden of having to take care of the the most tender and most vulnerable parts of me and the most vulnerable season for him Mm -hmm. was unbearably too much. It was so unfair to both of us. How did you make it through? I believe I had some really good therapy at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, It... I think this is where we come back to who Oliver is and has nothing to do with me. Like I have a, I don't know, nothing to do, but Oliver had the capacity to see my trauma too. And he had the capacity to be patient and wait for me to catch up. So when it was too much for me and I said, I could say, I don't want to deny you of this next step or whatever, but I need some time because there's so many other things. He was willing to wait. And it was an unfair thing to ask because just because he had the capacity doesn't mean it was on him. And so when we say, how did you make it through that? These unbearably difficult things, the same way resilience happens, it happens in community and in connection and in 25 different people who showed up in 25 different ways. Um, and, and especially in this kid who allowed me at least like at least a year and a half of just, just waiting for me, not because I was opposed to any of it, but it was the capacity piece. And then it was the, my own skill set as a parent. And I think that's what we also don't realize is that like finding healthcare is hard enough. Even if you're insured, I looked for a year and a half for primary care doctors who also to who would take a 14 15 16 year old right 14 15 year old and who had some competency in gender stuff which is so hard to find but in between all of that was me having this constant conversation with myself about every small shift that he made how could i talk to myself and check in with myself so that i could stop making it about me 
And not because I'm this terribly self-centered person. I mean, let's be real. I like making it about me. But I didn't understand why it kept becoming about me. Yeah. Like I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out for a little while. And then I did. It was every time he had a shift in who he was, I thought that reflected on something about who I was. Yeah. And it was that, you know, we talk about kids self-actualizing. We don't ever talk about the reality that parents have a harder time separating from their kids than the kids do. Like my insecure attachment was messing with our relationship a lot more than Oliver's secure attachment, right? Like, like he was okay being his own person and his therapist, I think taught him to say things like, that's your stuff, mom. That's not my stuff. That's not where I'm at. So that's, that's your stuff. But you were able to hear it from him. And so many parents I know cannot hear those lessons from them, right? You could hear it from him and be like, oh, or, and, and maybe not right away, right? Like, I know that sometimes there's this sort of like defensive part that jumps in and is like, oh, sure. Right? Yeah. This kid got to say some stuff to me and he happened to have a mom who had had lots and lots and lots of therapy who was actively doing work. I have spent my entire life trying to heal from generational extreme layers of abuse and neglect and harm from people who loved me with all they had. And so my singular goal as a parent was to not do that to my kid. So if my kid says to me, there's a harm happening, there's a hurt happening. I'm not okay with how this is going. I have two choices. I have the choice to, not believe him and go on the defensive and pretend that my feelings are more valid than this person in front of me that I created with my body. Right. And whether you created your kids with your body or not, like they're trying, they're, you know, entrenched in your soul. So, you know, like this human is saying to me, ouch. So I get to choose right then whether I believe them or not. And if I believe them, even if it takes two to tango, even if blah, 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 right? If I believe this kid, then it does. It forces me to say, what am, what am I, what am I doing? Am I making this about me? How am I not showing up for my kid? What are they actually asking for? And to stay curious and try to stay compassionate with myself and with my kid, because I don't know if you know 14, 15, 16 year olds, but tone of voice is a big part of relational dynamics at this age. Yes. But they also, most of them, I can say this because I have a human development degree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've studied these things. Um, every professor. Raised children. Uh, also raised children. Um, but <laughs> they don't talk differently than we do. And so the issue is not my child has tone or is being disrespectful at me when he's calling me out. Um, that has happened a few times, but only a few times. What really gets me pissed off, and I think probably gets every single parent um, in the wanting to punch the wall, is when our children talk to us the way we talk to them. Oh. When our children stop deferring to us because we are old mm. and pay their bills and would die for them. When they start treating us with the relational regard that we treat ourselves, one another, and them. So we get our little mirrors that look and sound like us, but don't have the cognitive development Mm -hmm. that we hope we have. Let's Mm -hmm. be generous with ourselves. (laughs) And so my Oliver 
has been this beautiful cacophony of mindful and patient and more emotional maturity than any young person should have because it's a heavy burden to know things and to see things and to not be able to unknow those things. And then other times, thankfully, he's this very typical person who goes off, but he also talks to me the way that he has heard me talk to him. So if he's coming at me with sharp edges and rage or anger or um, frustration or lack of patience or any of those things, I get to also see my mirror. That's a hard mirror for us to see. All of us, even people who are schooled the way that we are. So I'm not a very self-regulated human. I'm working on it. I'm a very reactive human. Even when I'm not dysregulated, I am still a reactive human. And my child is as well. (laughs) Uh, Thankfully, we both cover a lot of sharp edges with funny. Mm Mm-hmm. And some people would think that that is is not healthy. I would say that those people are not my people, generally speaking. Because <laughs> if, if I have something really hard to say about myself, and I can say it with humor, that also means that I'm not taking it so seriously that I think it's permanent. Or if Oliver needs to needs to say something to me, and we can soften the sharpness of it by laughing at ourselves and each other and the ridiculousness of humanity, we can... We can we can beat shame back a little bit so there's room to heal it. And thankfully, he learned that at a very young age. And that's one of the areas that I feel like I actually can take some pride in around my motherhood is that I have modeled for them that you can say true things about yourself that are not positive. And that's different than shitting on yourself. You know, it's different than being awful to yourself. I can own that when I get scared, I get more controlling. I can own that I am... I am relationally pretty needy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I can own those things and I can also own that they aren't necessarily permanent and that they don't take away from my value. So when they creep up and I get called out on them, I can, I can hear that. And so Oliver can too. And so we've made it through these really scary, hard moments because he chose to show up and show me who he was um, and some part of our relationship and and the safety of it allowed me to do the same. So we got to start seeing each other as human beings a lot sooner than most parent-child dyads, I think. Yeah, I think that you and Oliver definitely have a special relationship. I've, as I've watched it, you know, I've always thought the dynamic, the the trust, right? Anytime a kid comes out to us at any point, it's an act of trust. It, they're saying, I want you to know me. And for Oliver to have done that every step of the way through his progression and identity and identity development is really a a model of trust of how much he trusted you. Yeah. And I'm stunned that he trusts me because I know how much of a wreck I am. Right. Like, But that's your parts. Your parts are like, you trust me. Because I'm not entitled to his trust because I birthed him or because I raised him or because I pay his bills or because I gave him my car, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that he and I agree on and that I'm so glad that I caught it before he did so I could be the one to tell him that is that he is not lucky to have me as a mom. He is entitled to be loved at every stage and phase. 
and the notion that we are entitled to our children's trust or respect or admiration because Mm -hmm. we are doing what every child deserves. Mm -hmm. That is our ego. That is pure privilege. It's adult privilege. Mm -hmm. And it is our ego that is telling us that because children didn't choose to be born. Mm -mm. And I think we owe ourselves and our children some real humble honesty about that that those kids didn't choose to be here most often we brought them into whatever our shit was so the fact that he trusts me even though he knows me better than I want anybody to know me and that he does admire me and that he does like like me and that he does want to show himself to me and be affirmed by me that he seeks my approval, even with his groundedness, even in his, that, that this kiddo is my kiddo and I'm his mama. I don't feel entitled to that. And I, I think that a lot of that is my trauma stuff, sure. But I think it's also an, an, an under, understanding that in American society, we do not understand social connection and, and the social contract between parents and children. Yeah. We have... We have been taught through puritanical Western European white supremacy cultural stuff that lots of people have arguments about. We've been taught through these traditions that our children are somehow our property or our crutch or our scapegoats. Mm -hmm. They are somehow this extension of us and that they should develop the way we want them to. Versus becoming their own people and having our support as they develop into their own, their own personhood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Delina, I'm going to end us here and just say thank you so much for your vulnerability and for sharing your story and being so open because I know that your story is going to resonate deeply with parents and I know that parents are going to have their own stuff come up as they listen to it. So if you are listening to this and you did feel a lot of feelings as Delina was sharing, just know that you're not alone. This is a very human experience. Delina, is there anything else you want to make sure that parents hear before you go? I think the quicker, the quicker that we can accept that what a kid is going through isn't about us and that the stuff that is happening for us is ours and not theirs. Like the, yeah. the faster we can differentiate between our mm-hmm. experience and our kids' experience and allow both to be true at the same time and then take responsibility for our own experience mm-hmm. and feelings and traumas and expectations being devastated, mm-hmm. the faster we can get there, the more efficiently we can get there as if we have control over that. But if we did, the faster we can do that, we move through the worst parts of the scariest, I won't say worst, the scariest parts of these transitions in my mind. The faster we accept that we're not having the same experience as them and we're not supposed to, and it's not up to them to to make our experience better, everything after that feels easier and less scary. When it comes to crying, I'm what you'd call a team player. I couldn't sit through this conversation with Delina without crying. And I can't listen to it again without crying. 
but the good news is, is I also laughed a lot. I hope you had the same experience. I also hope that hearing Delina talk about her parts in this way has inspired you to dig a little deeper and get to know which parts of you are showing up. As promised, you can find the download for guided deeper reflection on Wild Heart Society's podcast page, as well as wildheartsociety.org slash downloads. If you're interested in learning more about parts work, there are lots of great books you can find. This all stems from a type of therapy called Internal Family Systems, which was developed by Dick Schwartz. I highly recommend his book, No Bad Parts, and You Are the One You've Been Waiting For. Links to those are in the show notes. Camp Wildheart and our community of listeners are here to support you through this journey. So if there's anything we can do to support you in supporting your kid, please let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well as Wild Heart Society, or you can send us an email at camp at wildheartsociety.org. We also have a private Facebook group for parents to connect with each other and ask questions of us and each other called Camp Wild Heart Community. Join us today. Thanks again to Delina for sharing her parts. Parents like her and you are what make me love doing this work. Thanks again for joining us for camp. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for free so you don't miss any future campfires and give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps other people find us and we want to make sure that anyone who wants one knows there's a bunk for them at Camp Wild Heart.